Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening received his Master's of Arts degree from the University of Dallas and his licentiate and doctorate degrees in sacred theology from the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome. In 1977, Dr. William Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and served continuously as professor of theology until his retirement from teaching in 2015. A well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, Dr. William Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism. Dr. Marshner is a renowned translator in multiple languages and is currently working on the first ever English translation of Cajetan's commentaries on the Summa Theologia. We are blessed to have Dr. Marshner as a regular presenter at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and we're always delighted when you're able to join us, Dr. Marshner. So thank you for being with us this evening. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here entirely. My topic tonight, if I haven't got this wrong, the topic is, can separation of powers be instituted or maintained in a theocracy? Do I have that right? You have that right. All right. Then uh, let's start by asking what we mean by the separation of powers. And then I'm going to ask what we mean by a theocracy. Now, you all know what it means in the United States Constitution to talk about a separation of powers. Our federal government at the national level is divided into three branches, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. The founding fathers were insistent that these powers should be separate, uh, each with their own institutional setup. And as you know, from the separation of powers come the checks and balances for which the American government is famous. Congress has two houses in it and cannot pass a law unless both houses pass it. Then the executive branch, the president, may veto the law if he really doesn't like it. And then Congress will need a supermajority in both houses to pass it over the president's veto. It is a system designed like the right way to handle a hot cup of coffee, slow sips at a time. And um, we are in we are indebted to Jefferson and Madison and Adams and the other fathers, founders of the Republic for this idea, but they didn't invent it. They got the idea of separation of powers from a fellow named Montesquieu. That's how we all pronounce it, but it's really Montesquieu. 
M-O-N-T-E-S-Q-I-E-U, which in French is Cure. So it's Montesquieu. That's not his last name. His last name was Secondat. And he was born down around um, the city of uh, uh, Burgundy. And um, he was a baron of several places. So he's Charles Louis Joseph, Baron of Montesquieu, and these other places. Um, I don't know how much of a stickler I should be for the correct French pronunciation. Everybody in this country says Montesquieu, and I'm getting too old to kick against popular resistance too hard. So Montesquieu, Charles Louis Joseph Montesquieu. Now then, the founding fathers got the idea from him by reading his book. His book, first published in 1748, was called The Spirit of the Laws, L'Esprit des Lois, Spirit of the Laws. And it was translated into English well before the end of the 18th century. So our founding fathers read it either in French, which many of them knew, or they could get it in the English translation. What did Montesquieu have to say about the separation of powers? The key thing was that separation of powers is the first condition for political liberty. No separation of powers, you don't even have the first condition for political liberty. And he says that um, he in turn got the idea from reading Locke, uh, the English philosopher, and um, Bolingbroke, the English jurist. Locke and Bolingbroke, both writing in the 17th century, had developed the theory of the British constitution. Now, we all know that England doesn't have a written constitution, but that doesn't mean they have no constitution. Their government is put together out of several components. And the three that most interested Montesquieu were the executive power vested in the king and the legislative power vested in the two houses of the British Parliament. In those days, both houses were very active and very important. The House of Commons represented a democratic element because it was elected by the commons in general, whoever had the vote. And the House of Lords was the aristocratic element. So you had monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy all working in there somewhere. Now, the reason Montesquieu considered separation of powers indispensable to political liberty is because he observed, and I think this is right, it takes power to check power. It takes power to check power. Okay. If there's no check on the royal power, it expands and grabs up everything. If there's no check, 
if there's no power to resist the House of Commons, the House of Commons grabs everything, which is what has happened in English these days. The House of Lords is as good as dead. And uh, the House of Commons just runs everything. And as you know, the uh, royal family has no government function at all. It reigns, but doesn't rule. The motto is, the sovereign reigns, the people rule, which I think is um, slightly comical. But anyway, this is all in Book 11 of The Spirit of the Laws. Montesquieu had studied the British Constitution as expounded by Locke and Bolingbroke. And he thought it was an ideal liberal government, freeish sort of government. But he also had something else interesting to say. He says a free society's government does not have to take precisely that British form. And he said you could also get limited government separation of powers in French tradition. There, of course, you had an extremely powerful monarchy in the 18th century, Louis XIV, until it went to sleep with Louis XV and then had its head cut off with Louis XVI. But anyway, under Louis XIV, a very powerful monarchy indeed. But checking the power of the monarch were the old parlement. P-A-R-L-E-M-E-N-T-S, parliaments um, in each province. The parlement were local governing bodies that were the guardians of local traditions, uh, local longstanding customary liberties, and so on. And... um, uh, custodians, they were mostly lawyers of uh, judicial precedent. And the king could not move against these parlements, even though he was an absolute monarch. There was no check by a national legislature, but there was a check from the provincial parlement. And Montesquieu thought that that was very wise and very good. And um, interestingly enough, I just mentioned the Sun King, Louis XIV. Well, the Sun King could do pretty much what he wanted in the gardens of Versailles. But one time he had an army. He led to the south of France. And he wanted to come through Marseille. Well, the provincial government in Marseille said, no, we have a traditional immunity. The king's army cannot enter our city without our permission. (laughs) So here is the sun king cooling his heels in the south of France, waiting for this group of local authoritative bureaucrats and lawyers to decide if he could come in. Okay. The British Constitution explained by Locke and Bolingbroke, king, nobility, and commons, Outside the British form, you had limitation on the central government by these intermediate bodies. And, of course, the first of all those intermediate bodies was the church. 
Now then, Montesquieu was no great fan of the church, but he got better with age. In an early book called The Persian Letters that he wrote in 1728, he was full of rationalist, anti-clerical bile. And then he changed his mind. So by the time you get to book 24 of The Spirit of the Laws, written, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, he has toned down his anti-ecclesiastical rhetoric because he's recognized that it's fallacious to attack religion, or the church in this case, by putting up a list of all that's done wrong. You must also put up a list of all the blessings it has brought. And uh, Montesquieu became increasingly appreciative of that. Now, in the United States, we have, of course, the separation of powers at the national level, but we also have it in the federal structure of the government because we have intermediate bodies. Intermediate meaning between the national government and the citizens. We have institutions not invented by the government, not under the direct sponsorship of the government, but able to resist the central power in some cases, if it doesn't like what the government is doing, and so on. I'm going to hold off for a minute talking about my next example of the separation of powers, which is going to be the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, as it existed from 1740 to 1918. The Austro-Hungarian monarchy existed for only 178 years. So the American Republic is an older government than the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. But, eh, you have to understand that the Austro-Hungarian had had gone through any number of revisions and changes. The Holy Roman Empire ceased to be, and the emperor became emperor of Austria, and then because of succession problems, the reign passed to Maria Theresa. And Maria Theresa was a very progressive ruler. Very progressive. She was terrific at strengthening the role of intermediate bodies, including provincial legislatures. But more about that in due time. I turn now to my other topic tonight, what do we mean by theocracy? Okay, in my opinion, the only theocracy in the universe is identically the universe. It is run directly by God, okay? He is all powerful in deciding how things will go in the history of the universe, which he has planned through what we call his providence, okay? Providence is a lovely, fancy, old-fashioned word for advanced planning, okay? And that's one of the things that uh, is a highlight of government, planning in advance, foreseeing what may turn up and planning to meet emergencies, trials, and, and so on. 
Now then, there is in the world, besides the one genuine theocracy, a blasphemous imitation. I am talking about Islam, okay? The Muslim blasphemy is that as there is one God in the universe, so there must be one ruler on earth with all power to rule wherever the message of Muhammad can be spread. That ruler is the caliph. Okay? And the caliph is at once the head of state and the head of the religion, which is why the caliph's title is the prince of the believers. Amir al-Mukminin, prince of the believers. Okay. Now, God, one caliph, and the caliph has exactly one power with which to do everything. You know from history some famous examples. Uh, the famous historical example is the Ottoman Sultanate. It came to an end in 1918 when the Sultan was overthrown and Turkey became uh, a republic. But as long as it lasted, the Sultan was the sole ultimate authority in all things. And um, Montesquieu had a name for that kind of government. He called it a despotism. Okay. And he says that the characteristic of a despotism is fear. The sultan has to be afraid of plotters against him. And everybody has to be afraid of the sultan's wrath because there are no other intermediate institutions between you and the sultan's wrath. So if he wants to get you, he's going to get you. Um, I was recently reading a novel set in the reign of the last uh, competent sultan, uh, Abdul Mehmet II, who reigned from about 1869 until... Um, 1909, when he was finally overthrown. He was replaced by a guy who uh, was scared of his own shadow and couldn't run anything, so never mind about him. The last effective sultan was this Mech, uh, Abdul Mehmet II. And everybody says he was paranoid. He was paranoid. Scared of his own shadow, maintained an enormous apparatus of spies throughout Turkey, spies in the chanceries of his sub-satraps and so on, and um, uh, sharply not only watched but punished everything he thought was a plot. Now then, the Ottoman Sultanate is not the only example of an Islamic theocracy. The next one is the king in Saudi Arabia. The House of Saud represents an absolutist government. There is no regular parliament or 
no opposition parties are allowed. And um, basically all power are in the hands of the monarch. And we see the same pattern repeated in much more recent news. As you all know, uh, back in the 90s, um, there was an attempt to create a new Islamic caliphate. And um, the alleged caliph behind this arrangement was al-Baghdadi. And uh, basically what he did was gather a sufficient number of thugs with which to seize territory and rule everyone within that territory according to al-Baghdadi's interpretation of Islamic law, which was uh, not pretty. Okay, that is what we have to fight against. If we believe or prize in any way a separation of powers, because in Islam, there is none. There isn't even the basic separation of the caliph from the mosque hierarchy, because the caliph is the head of that too. And, um, or was, um, there's no distinction between church and state in Islam. Never mind separation. No distinction. The one ruler on earth rules the religious and the secular with equal power in all directions and over everybody. Okay? Now then, when we turn to Christianity, we find no Catholic confessional state has ever resembled an Islamic sultanate. No Christian confessional state has ever resembled an Islamic sultanate or caliphate. Indeed, so far as I can tell, no Catholic confessional state ever called itself a theocracy. Hmm? Confessional state, yes. Catholic state, yes. Theocracy, no. Why not? Well, to get the full answer, you had better go back and read St. Thomas on the, on the subject of the divine government. I said there's one theocracy. It's the divine government of the universe. But what goes on in that divine government, according to St. Thomas's answer, is all in question 103 in the Soma Theologica. In question 103, he distinguishes two sides to governing, the planning and the implementation, providence and execution. Okay? When it comes to the planning, St. Thomas says, God is the sole ruler of the universe. He is the sole author of the plan of providence, according to which everything runs, okay? And um, any other associate of our God in the government of the universe is on the side of execution, the carrying out of God's plan. And of course, one thinks of the angels, 
in that regard, but one shouldn't think only of the angels. One should also recognize that for St. Thomas, the laws of physics are also the laws of God's providence. Okay. He runs the world through secondary causes. The implementation of his will is through secondary causes. Secondary causes are not all human. Lots of them are mineral, animal, vegetable. And God maintains his rule through the laws of nature and the instincts which he gives to the beasts. Um, can anything resist? Well, let's, for, let's start with a different question. Can anything do an act, commit an act, which is contrary to the divine government? Okay. St. Thomas says no. If you're talking about the planning stage, you can't resist providence. It's going to have its way. It's going to get you one way or another. But you can resist the implementers, the executives of the divine plan. Okay. Not only angels, but also, well, uh, I don't know. Maybe you like to set yourself up against the laws of nature. I don't recommend it. But if you've decided you've had it with gravity and you want to defy it, well, what? Or, or if you <laughs> decide that you have had it with um, your biological destiny and want to turn yourself into a person of the opposite gender, which opposite gender, I don't know. But if you want to, then you're going to be going against God's execution of his providence. And St. Thomas also says very clearly, God governs the rational creature, man, through human government. All right. Human government is a secondary cause that makes laws, enforces laws, judges cases under laws, um, ideally, it does so as a um, an instrumentality, if you will, of the divine plan. But that doesn't make the government theocratic. I would prefer another word. The government, if it's doing everything right, is theonomous. T-H-E-O-N-O-M-O-U-S. In other words, the law, the basic law is from God. The physical laws are from God. The moral laws are from God. The laws of human nature are from God. And uh, a good government recognizes the laws of physics, the laws of nature, including the laws of human reproduction. And... Um, but, but exercises its own creativity in the management of human affairs, okay? We are meant to be under the government of man-made laws. They are not meant to contradict divine laws, but to go beyond them. Divine law says nothing about when we should have an election day 
or if we should have an election day. Okay? That's not God's concern. The divine law requires that man be governed by the laws made by a human government. That's why no Christian government has ever called itself a theocracy. Now, there was a time when a Christian government was um, about as close to a uh, a despotism as um, one would um, dare admit. That was the government in the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. The uh, emperor called the autocrator, the man who is himself the ruler, um, had uh, power over uh, just about every aspect of things. But even so, Byzantium was not like an Ottoman sultanate. First of all, the Eastern Roman Empire inherited the traditions of the Roman Republic. There was a Senate in Constantinople. Did it become a rubber stamp of the emperor? Well, on some reigns it was, and in some reigns it wasn't. Um, and, of course, you had the basic distinction between church and state, because the uh, the Byzantine emperor was not the head of the church hierarchy, never claimed to be, never claimed to be Archbishop of Constantinople, even. Moreover, um, in the... Eastern Christian Empire, there was a long-standing tradition of Roman law, okay? Roman law goes back to Republican times. It was given its final edition under the Emperor Justinian in the East, but Roman law covered the um, rights and liberties of intermediate bodies the rights and liberties of personal property, business people, and so on and so on. So there was an enormous bulk of tradition that uh, existed even under a Byzantine emperor, and he was not free to trample all over that. So in no Christian government, Has God ever been the chief executive? You can't pull him down from heaven to make him pass human laws. He's never been the head of the legislature in any Christian government. He's never been Speaker of the House. And he has never been Chief Justice. Human government works according to the established patterns of human law. And um, I suppose we're lucky to have behind us the long tradition of uh, British common law, as well as other sources of law. So this is why we have never had a Catholic theocracy. And this is also why we have never had a problem about the separation of powers. Okay. It is true that separation at the national level of executive power from legislative power, from judicial power, is a fairly recent invention. But 
separation of power as between the national and the local or provincial level is as old as Christendom. Okay. And Montesquieu recognized that as a form of separation of powers, which could sustain political freedom because you had power to check power. Okay. And this, alas, is the lesson that seems to have been lost on the People's Republic of Chad, or what is it, Chop, Chaz, Chop, whatever, six square blocks or something in Seattle, where um, things have uh, <laughs> gone from bad to worse lately with people being shot, stabbed, and whatnot. No police around to protect anybody. Anarchy never lasts longer than it takes to organize a mob. Once the mob gets organized, the leaders of the mob are the all-powerful bosses, and they demand everything that could be against them to come toppling down. There was an interview on radio, television, I don't know, recently, by some person claiming to be in authority in Black Lives Matter. And this character uh, said that, yeah, racism has to go, goodbye Confederacy and so on. But the source and heart of racism is the fact that Jesus is always portrayed with a white face. All church windows have to be smashed said this guy. And Christianity needs to be abolished. Not going to be any religious freedom in CHOP. Not going to be any separation of powers in CHOP. And um, so if you want uh, a recent, extremely small-scale example of mob rule, you need look no further than Seattle. Because anarchy and mob rule are two sides of the same coin. Okay. Well, now I think that I have about used up my time. Anyway, I've gotten through my outline, said most of what I wanted to say, although I haven't yet said enough about the glorious Habsburg Empire. This is a newly published book by a chap named Peter Judson. It's called the Habsburg Empire, and it's it extremely scholarly, you know, recent modern scholarship. But for once, it's extremely friendly to the House of Habsburg, okay? And all the good that the empire did to the nations that uh, made it up. And what brought it down? Identity politics. Not black, but Czech. Or Hungarian, hmm? not to mention Styrian and um, Croatian and so on. But identity politics, a.k.a. Ra uh, romantic nationalism, is the main thing that brought the empire down. That, of course, in the mess in World War I. But um, it is important to appreciate the degree to which 
the Habsburg Empire brought a unifying trans-ethnic government to the entire Danube Valley and held in check the forces of identity politics. Yes. So it's a lot, it's a whole lot worth thinking about. I highly recommend this new history by Peter Yudson. And with that, I um, give you leave to depart. I shall take my leave. We'll have a few minutes break, and then I'll be back for questions, if you like. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Marshner. That is, uh, was just a wonderful, very timely talk. Um, so thank you for being with us and, and sharing that wisdom with us this evening. All right. Well, it looks like we have quite a number of questions coming in. So um, that's always a good sign, I think. People are always engaged when that happens. So Dr. Marshner, are you ready to take some questions? All right. I'm all set. Okay. Fire away. Wonderful. Let's take this one from Teresa. Teresa is uh, writing in. She first wants to thank you for the talk this evening. And she's wondering, how would you describe our current government in the United States? Are we still a republic? <laughs> well, barely is how I would answer that. Barely. We do have the separation of powers on paper, but um, our Constitution is being eroded by the partisan spirit. And uh, I think it's very interesting. Montesquieu says that the central virtue in a democracy is patriotism, love of country over love of self, to the point of self-sacrifice. Yes. I think it's very interesting that in order to rally the American people to any sort of unity today, the only card we've got to play is patriotism. Mr. Trump is very good at it. Uh, even the Democrats give uh, some allegiance to it. But um, I think that many of our cherished institutions are living on, um, I don't know if I want to say borrowed time or a short fuse, because I, I think... Um, the drift to the left of the Democratic Party will bring eventually to the United States a highly leftist form of government and precious distinctions will disappear. Um, the separation of powers will be in real danger. Uh, let's just say that uh, we are a republic, barely. All right. Thank you for that answer. And I see one of our video participants, Ray, has a question. So, Ray, you can go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Marshner, what's the relationship between separation of powers and the Catholic principle of subsidiarity? Um, if you mean separation of powers by levels of government, so you have intermediate levels between the national level and the people then they're the same, okay? If you mean, however, dividing the central government into separate legislative and executive branches, 
then uh, that's uh, there's no Catholic tradition about that. It's just um, a nice idea, I think. All right, thanks. Uh, we have an anonymous, uh, someone writing in anonymously who's asking if you would share your opinion of integralism. Integralism. Well, there's a word that used to be much tossed about. It was a word in the mouth of the Catholic left. If you believed in traditional church-state arrangements, you were an integralist. And if you believed in the full orthodoxy of the church, you were an integralist. Modernists were all uh, taking pot shots at integralism. Now, integralism, um, however, runs a danger. It's not, it's not only a bad word used by the Catholic left. There's also a certain phenomenon that is known to arise on the Catholic right that gives fuel to our maligners. Um, people sometimes think that a particular long-standing tradition is so integral to the faith that it can't be dropped. Now, we had a long-standing tradition of support for monarchies in Europe. I didn't mind it. But we dropped it. Monarchies were getting few and far between. So we dropped that. We didn't do much about it anymore. And uh, there are people, I believe, who think that without Catholic kings, there cannot be an acceptable form of government for Catholics. That would be an integralist mistake. Then there are people who sweat every detail of the liturgy to such an extent that, um, do you all remember the maniple? Yes, priests used to wear it as part of their vestments on their wrist and it was abolished by John the 23rd, maybe? Yeah. And now an integralist is gonna be somebody who says, no maniple, no valid mass. That's ridiculous, but it's a sample of integralism. And um, I think we could come up with a lot more examples if we wanted to talk about it. You could assign me to give a lecture someday on integralism, OICC, I, I, I wouldn't mind. Something the French talk about a great deal. Yeah, we'll have to add that one to our curriculum planning spreadsheet we have going on. Okay, this question is sort of related to the answer that you gave. So I want to follow up with this one. This is a question from Larry, who is writing in, and he says, the French revolutionists thought the Catholic Church was too tied to the monarchy. Thus, they persecuted the church. What, in your opinion, do you think should be the relation of the church to the secular government? As cooperative as possible, but that is going to depend a great deal on the nature of a secular government. If it's in the hands of a Stalinist, there's not much way you can cooperate with it. You will be betraying Christ. Um, if the secular government is a modern style democracy, then the thing you have to worry about, if you are the church, 
is that people get the idea that majority rule in the state should also be majority rule in the church. Any unpopular church teaching can simply be declared null and void, illegal, whatever. And in the teeth of church opposition, uh, vicious and corrupt practices can be introduced by the secular law. You all know the sad story of Ireland. Is there a trace of Catholicism left on that green island? It's getting scarce. Uh, but you got, you know, you got divorce now and abortion now and birth control, whatever. All of that junk. And of course, some of these forms of junk are very popular with people. And so the church should play the role of forming the consciences of citizens in a democracy. Yes. And that means that Catholic schools need full freedom from government control. We're not going to have a bunch of politicians telling us what we can teach in our schools. And I had a friend who was a, an, an, uh, is a chaplain in the, um, the Army. Was it the Air Force? The Army, I think. And uh, this was in the Obama regime. He was given an order. He wasn't allowed to preach against abortion. So bless his heart, he sued and won. But this is the kind of thing that goes on in a democratic society where the government wants to make by law the uh, pre- the make a matter of law the preferences of the hemi semi and demi Catholic electorate, not to mention the apostate electorate, not to mention the heretical electorate. I think that's enough bad news to have packed into one sentence. Oh well, God bless your friend, the chaplain. Yes. Yeah. What a, what a good example for us. Um, I think we'll end with this question. Um, Seems like the conversation is somewhat leading that way anyway. So Josh is writing in and he is asking you, Dr. Marshner. Um, He says, well, first, thank you again, Dr. Marshner. And he says, do you see any practical steps for the church to recover a sufficient amount of power to check the power of the state in our current times? Yeah. Yeah. Um. The first thing necessary, of course, is for the church to get its own house in order. That means real and serious crackdown on sexual predators in the clergy. Real and serious crackdown on homosexuality in the clergy. It means a real and serious crackdown on the seminaries. There has to be a lot of people fired. A lot of seminaries closed. The church, in other words, has to regain control of the formation of the rising generation of priests. That's essential. Then the um, church has to recover her courage to preach the unpopular parts of the gospel. Okay? 
People have itching ears these days, as St. Paul warned us. They don't want to hear about sin. Oh, no, that's obsolete. Sorry. It's not obsolete. And what you're doing is probably a sin. <laughs> so there are lots of things people are doing that are, in fact, sinful, and they have to be told so. No other approach is merciful. All right. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Marshner. Again, just such a timely talk for us these days. And with that answer, we have our work cut out for us as a church, certainly. Um, a lot to pray for and a lot to strive for in, in the coming days. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.